1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City, where we are waiting patiently for the first snow of the winter, um, although by the end of this week, I'm told we will be inundated with snow, two sto- two snowstorms coming. We are joined um, from a place more accustomed to snow, uh, um, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, by uh, our friend, Nick Burns of the Harvard Kennedy School. How are you, Nick?
2: Very well, David, nice to be with you.
1: Um, uh, glad, glad you could join us, and in Washington, DC, uh, we have uh, our, one of our regulars, Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed.
3: How are you, David?
1: And a friend of ours, uh, Mika Oyang of the Third Way, where she runs the national security um, uh, component of what they're doing. How are you, Mika?
0: Doing well, thanks.
1: So, what I wanted to do—we're one of the things we're doing uh, now for the next couple of weeks—is looking ahead to the new administration and the priorities of the new administration. Uh, and given who we are and what we do, our focus is on foreign policy and national security and I, I'd like to look at the first hundred days and then I'd like to look at um, maybe some of the longer term priorities of uh, the Biden administration. Uh, I've seen a bunch of articles on this, um, some of which I found pretty goofy, you know the, you know the, the kind that's a, well, Biden's gonna have to decide whether he's gonna restore things or he's gonna reform things. And it's like, yeah, right, of course. Um, and he's gonna do both of those things depending on what the situation is. But I thought I'd go around and first talk to you guys about the first 100 days and then talk um, a little bit about longer term things. Um, uh, and I And I think what I'll do just because there is breaking news in this area, and we were just talking, Mika about it before we started. It seems like one of the things that's going to be on the radar early of Biden team is going to be cyber because we have what seems to be a, a fairly large breach, which we're going to be learning about for several weeks to come and is obviously going to be sort of front of mind when they take over. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of what we're talking about here, Mika?
0: Happy to. Yeah. So it was announced last night that the government had discovered that Foreign hackers had gotten into the Treasury Department and parts of the Commerce Department and possibly more. They are in the middle of trying to do a damage assessment right now and try and figure out the extent of the problem, though the Secretary of State has been out there saying he definitely thinks it's the Russians. Um, There's some very sensitive information at Treasury that could have been compromised. We don't know exactly what happened, but this appears to be linked to a hack of a private cybersecurity company, FireEye, which had a whole bunch of tools that people used to get onto networks. Um, And so potentially, the impact is very broad across the US government. Um, This comes at the same time as we have seen a wave of ransomware attacks across America where school districts in Baltimore and other places, hospitals in Vermont have been hit by these attacks that cripple these essential services and are impacting people's lives um, in potentially very dangerous ways. So while cybersecurity had not been one of the things that we'd expected to see uh, as a priority for this administration, it's a collateral impact from the pandemic and an ongoing threat. And it's something that they're definitely gonna have to deal with um, over the first hundred days and probably throughout the administration.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Now, Nick, you're one of the country's most distinguished diplomats, and I know that uh, folks in the Biden team have uh, been consulting with you. You've been part of that uh, team. Um, uh, I I suspect, you know, cyber was among the 100 days priorities. What would you say, you know, going in um, is the um, the to do list for the Biden team and in, in the first few weeks of the administration.
2: Well, David, thank you. Um, I think the home front has to be the priority. Even if you're thinking of foreign and, and, and defense policy, dealing with a pandemic at home, taking measures to try to restore growth eventually to the economy, dealing with race. Uh, a country can't be effective in its foreign defense policy if it's fundamentally divided and reeling at home. And, My sense is that that's the right place for an American president to be putting uh, his initial efforts on foreign policy. Obviously, I think President-elect Biden has been very clear. Um, We're gonna go back into the World Health Organization on January 20th. And that's where we should be, to be working globally to support what we need to do here at home in the pandemic. Uh, I think you'll see a much more active uh, Biden administration trying to work internationally on the recession through the G20. And certainly the appointment of John Kerry, I think, is very significant on climate change. And pre- President-elect Biden's been, been equally clear that we'll return to the Paris Climate Change Agreement, or which we never should have left. And, and we'll get back in the fight in a big way, not just through what uh, John Kerry will do, which will be considerable in my judgment, but in terms of how to return to growth in part through green technologies. And so um, to me, that's the opening moves that the the new team is already signaling. In addition, David, two more things. Uh, this team really prizes allies and Americans should prize our allies. So Joe Biden has been for decades, a strong supporter of NATO, also of the European Union and our strategic relationship with it, with our East Asian allies. And uh, President Trump was at best ambivalent but more often hostile to these alliances which hurt us badly, and weakened us Over the last four years. And there's going to be a big decision that has to be made. The president, the new president in Congress, what do we do about Afghanistan? Do we continue these talks uh, that Zahali Zad has been running for the United States? Very fine negotiator. Do we seek to leave? On what terms? Uh, This is going to be a very, very consequential opening couple of months for the new team.
1: Let me ask you a very quick follow-up question there. There was some Uh, reporting today out of Iran that the Iranians would accept um, the U.S. rejoining JCPOA, something else that this administration has been talking about. What are your expectations there?
2: Well, I think uh, Joe Biden was clear in the campaign trail that the United States ought to try to go back uh, to a nuclear agreement with Iran. That would mean reconstituting, David, you'll remember, Britain, France, Germany, Russia, China, the United States, all on one side of the table. Uh, that group was put together way back in 2005. Can you put that group back together again? The wild card being the Chinese and the Russians? Will, uh, will they be pulling on the same ore? Uh, the idea of going back and ask and demanding that the Iranians um, uh, agree to the limits on their plutonium and uranium programs uh, from 2015 makes sense. The Iranians, of course, have already violated that agreement. Uh, they're now producing enough low enriched uranium that eventually could turn into two nuclear bombs if they chose to go in that direction. So you've got to get them to stand down. But there's also the very complicated but important issues of Iran's ballistic missiles and Iran's cruise missiles that are a real danger to everybody uh, in the Middle East, to Israel, to the Sunni states, to American forces, to the Europeans. And so how do you bring those in? Do you make them part of the agreement? Do you have side agreements? This is not going to be easy. This is going to be difficult. And you're dealing with a divided Iranian government too between those who might want to make a deal like uh, Foreign Minister Javed Zarif and those in the Revolutionary Guards that aren't thinking too kindly, that never think kindly about the United States, but particularly uh, after, the, um, after the, um, the murder of Soleimani back in January, uh, have it out for the United States. I think this is going to be tough, but it, you need to take it on.
1: So, Ed, you know, one of the things that the world is doing right now is trying to anticipate not only what the tenor of these first hundred days will be and what the priorities will be, but how it will be different from uh, Trump. One of the ways that they will do it is one of the ways that Washington insiders do it, and that is uh, looking at the team. Uh, and when you look at the Trump national security team, there are a bunch of familiar names, Uh uh, Jake Sullivan, the incoming National Security Advisor, was involved in that Iran deal and 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 shaping it from the beginning. Tony Blinken has uh, been at uh, Biden's side for a long time. Will now be the Secretary of State. Um, Avril uh, Haines, o- over at the as Director of National Intelligence, uh, was the Deputy National Security Advisor uh, for some period of time as part of that Obama team. Um, uh, Lloyd. Austin was in the military for a lot of this, but but Biden has known him for a long time. When you look at this team, what does it tell you about what Biden priorities will be?
3: It's, it's a good question. I mean, if you look at Blinken, uh, Tony Blinken, I think you probably put a bit more of an accent on the restorationist And if you look at Jake Sullivan, you probably put a bit more of an accent on, uh, you know, the sort of reinventing um, or, or new strategic vision side of things. In practice, that might not sort of amount to, to much. The 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 only question mark in the bunch of names that you've uh, uh, the, those sort of names at the forefront you've just mentioned, I would have is over the wisdom of the Lloyd Austin um, nomination um, because I I do think there's civil mill um, divide and and the law um, having to be waived um, on uh, General Austin's behalf is going to provoke a fight that Biden didn't need to have. Um, There were a number of other people who could have um, been nominated. Um, And I mean, Jay Johnson, for example. Um, uh, Michelle Flournoy, I understand, might have provoked fights with the left. It might have been seen as the blob sort of coming back in. Um, There might be personal stuff between Biden and Flournoy dating from the debates over Afghanistan surges and Libya um, uh, interventions and so on. Um, But so the overall impression, and Avril Haines of course is very widely respected, the overall impression I get is of a very experienced sort of steady bunch of people with whom Biden is close. And I think that's important. Um, I think that they're experienced. I, I have maybe putting a bit too much hope on Jake um, in some sort of thinking out of the box. I do think we need some um, um, new strategic uh, understanding of, of the world we're in, which is different even than the world that Vice President Biden was in four years ago. Um, it's changed a lot. And um, some of the stuff that Jake has uh, talked about and written about, such as you know foreign policy for the middle class or a post-neoliberal American sort of presence on the world stage is, I think, Potentially very important and very interesting. I'm also very interested in industrial policy, which is where foreign policy, because of the China-related nature of it, because where foreign policy and economics might meet, and it's where some Republicans might possibly be persuadable um, to vote for for spending, like Marco Rubio, um, for spending um, for research and development spending. Um, so I'm I'm I think it's a pretty impressive team. I'm you know I have I have no um, cantankerous sentiments to
1: share with you. Well, we're disappointed. We look forward (laughs) to your cantankerous uh, sentiments on a regular basis. Um, Mika, one thing that you won't see with this group that we've seen in past administrations, including the Obama administration, is a big learning curve. Um, uh, Biden has a lot of foreign policy experience and Obama didn't. These people know each other. They've worked in these positions. Yes, four years has trans inspired, but they've all been engaged throughout that period of time. What would you like to see as their top priorities? Uh, You can pick up on what Nick or Ed said or, or, or go in a different direction.
0: I think Nick's absolutely right in terms of what the top priorities are for the Biden administration. There's an urgency to addressing the pandemic and getting the economy started again. But, you know, The president elect promised to build back better. And to Ed's point about the world changing, I think one of the things that is a little tricky for this team being so experienced is that there are certain defaults about the way that they're going to approach the world picking up from where they left off but the world has in fact changed and there are some big fundamental assumptions that are different now than the last time they took power it's not just that the ground has shifted on jcpoa but we've seen a resurgence of assertions of european sovereignty in the digital space and in other places that's different than where they were before. Um, We are now in a post post 9-11 world where terrorism does not provoke the same urgency and priority for funding and attention that it did when they were last in government. There are these big fundamental questions about whether or not America can be trusted to keep its word over the long term, given the way the Trump administration has broken agreements and then the Biden administration will step back into them. As we negotiate with foreign partners, how do we say to people, yes, this is not just an agreement while I sit in the White House, but this is an agreement that America makes with the rest of the world. And I think that that's actually a very challenging place to be in if we're not healing internally. So I do think that there's a lot that the Biden team has to work on that's immediate, but there are some of these bigger fundamental assumptions that I think they have to uh, shake their thinking on and shift the way that they approach some things. Otherwise, the changes that they bring will not in fact be lasting, but will be ephemeral to the administration.
1: You know, Nick. Among the things that have changed in the past four years is um, our capacity. Uh, the State Department uh, saw a lot of uh, people leaving, demoralization, um, shifts in in traditional missions. Um, we've seen similar uh, problems within the intelligence community. Um, you've, you know, you were a career diplomat. You were the Under Secretary of State uh, for Political Affairs. You understand well uh how important um diplomats and diplomacy are to all of this the the the, the 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 you know the ability to work these issues day in and day out um how urgent uh is the need to begin repair and rebuilding work inside the institutions
2: oh i think it's one of the first order Priorities, David, for the new president and the new new team. If you think of the the attacks that Donald Trump launched on the Justice Department, on the CIA, on the FBI, on the State Department, it goes on and on. We've never had a president essentially try to weaken the institutions, the nonpartisan institutions uh, of the federal government, but he's done it. State is in um, very poor shape. Uh, You've you've seen an exodus of senior level, mid level, and junior officers. You've seen a failure of trying to create a diverse workforce. There is no diversity right now. The entire leadership of the State Department right, right now is white male and you can't have that in, in the 21st century. You can't have a high performing institution that isn't listening to people uh, from different groups, both in terms of age and gender and race and ethnicity. And, and I think you know, um, the, the Trump administration is the first administration in a century not to have put foreign service officers into the front lines uh, of, the, of the policymakers in the State Department. The assistant secretaries of state, there are 23 uh, of them, are the ambassadorial level line managers. Not a single one of them is a career foreign service or senior uh, civil service official for the first time in 100 years. This has never happened before. you have seen a politicization of the State Department by the Trump administration, which is um, it goes well beyond anything any prior Republican or Democratic administration has done. It goes on and on. We've just issued, David, a Harvard uh, Kennedy School report two years in the making, 10 big recommendations to reinvent the State Department. You really need to do that for all of these federal government agencies. So I think- Where can can
1: people find that report if they wanna read it? They can
2: find it on the Harvard Kennedy School website. Um, And um, I'd be happy to talk to anybody who's interested about it. Um, I think President-elect Biden is obviously conscious of this because he really deeply understands the federal government because of his years in not just as vice president, but in the Senate. Uh, my strong sense is that Tony Blinken, uh, who's gonna be Secretary of State, uh, very much understands this uh, and that the new team wants to um, repair and rebuild and restore this in, these institutions, especially at the State Department and USAID for the future. I think in this regard, that the appointment of my friend Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield is really important as a signal. You know, they've chosen someone from the Foreign Service uh, to go to the United Nations as our ambassador. That's a very important signal early on that they want to change things for the better. I think people feel encouraged by it.
1: What do you think it's going to be harder to rebuild, the State
2: Department or the New England Patriots? Uh, well, I think, this, you know, despite my our, our joint uh, faith in the Patriots, David, um, I think the State Department is probably more important in the cosmic realm You and put the attention there. Let Bill Belichick give him three years of patriots back in the Super Bowl.
1: Yeah, well, now now that Bill Belichick was named to the President's Council on Physical Fitness just the other day, um, I'm afraid I'm going to have to change my views on these subjects. But, um, Ed, you know, one of the things that's implicit in what um, Nick was talking about here, there is a critique of the Biden administration. And maybe it goes to some extent to this reform restoration issue, but the average age of the cabinet is 63. Um, the, the 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 names are very familiar. Um, yet the world is changing very rapidly. And of course we value experience, but do you think we've got a deficit of new names, new ideas, new thinking and next generation going on here?
3: Not necessarily. I mean, I think, well, you know, who is a more experienced, seasoned name than Janet Yellen? Um, and who would I rather have as a Treasury Secretary? Um, nobody than Janet Yellen. She, she's the right choice for that kind of job. She's arguably the best qualified Treasury nominee, at least, um, to be Treasury Secretary in, in the nation's history. Um, you know, she's been chair, chair of the Fed, she's been Chair of the Council of Economic Advisers. Um, uh, so I, I I don't sort of, I. I don't critique age or familiarity as being a problem. I, I, I don't think that's a problem. I, I understand that some of the civil rights groups who are, um, are arguing about the diversity questions with the picks so far are saying, look, if you choose somebody who's in their 60s, then you're choosing somebody who has acclimatized themselves to a world that we don't want to continue. And so I understand. I understand some of those arguments. I think in foreign policy, if Jake Sullivan gets a second to breathe and come up for air in that, you know, nightmarish job of being national security adviser, that he's young, uh, even though he's a familiar name, and I think he's pretty dynamic. Um, so I don't. I actually don't share that premise of the critiques of of Biden's picks. Um, the, the two, the two I, I would have problems with, uh, one I've already mentioned is General Austin. Um, and the other is um, not because of his age or familiarity is Tom Bilsack. I think that that, I think USDA should have gone to Marcia Fudge. And I think, you know, if, if we're talking about diversity should not just be a box checking exercise. To send her to HUD is about as stereotypical as you can get for an African-American appointee when the real reform, the real change, and the real potential is, is having somebody like her with her background at USDA. So I have to say, I find the Tom Vilsack appointment a little bit puzzling.
1: So Mika, in addition to the work that you you know uh, have been doing at the Way, and prior to that you worked on, on, on the Hill, uh, foreign policy, although there's a lot of latitude for the executive branch to do, it requires, um, collaboration with the Hill. We don't know exactly how this Georgia election is going to come out, but we do know that some of the Democratic voices on the Hill are um, are among the more uh, progressive and different calling for change. You know, the Chris Murphy's out there who's been, you know, on our show frequently and is a very thoughtful guy. And and, and and there are other voices like that. How, what do you think the relationship is going to be like between the Biden team uh, and the hill um, going forward. And I do want to say to everybody, we know that uh, that Mika has got to go in a couple of minutes. So this will be this will be her last um, uh, round of questions and we'll just talk to Nick and Ed for a couple more minutes.
0: Um, Yeah, I think that the Biden, you know, Biden himself comes from the Hill, so he knows people there well. But I think that really what you see in a lot of places in the Hill on foreign policy is a real generational divide. And a lot of the younger members of Congress are much more isolationist in their orientation to the rest of the world um, than the older generation. And that comes from experience. This younger generation who came of age seeing things like the Iraq war, looking at Vietnam looking sorry looking back at vietnam looking at some of the other things the us has done in re- reaction to arab spring have this attitude that when the US engages abroad, it only makes the situation worse. And so it is the kinder thing to do to leave the rest of the world alone. And those of us who are a little older, we remember Bosnia, people learned the lessons of World War II and NATO, come from families who have experienced much worse environments and see that when the US engages and engages well, we do great things for people. And that tension about whether it is helpful, more helpful to engage versus leave alone is one that will run through um, the administration. But because it's a generational gap, there is a real risk that those younger progressives will feel like the response to them is patronizing and dismissive. And that is a real challenge because that attitude will age through the electorate and through our politics. um, And it it will be shaped by people's experience who feel like we cannot afford to engage and maintain such large militaries as we do now. But the experience of an older generation feels differently about that. So I think that it will be a continuing challenge for traditional internationalist Democrats um, to continue to argue for international engagement, or will have to rethink the ways that they engage internationally um, because of that. And then at the same time, the Republicans no longer uh, retain that mantle of Reagan international engagement. And you see this in particular in the support for non-proliferation agreements. There are only two senator, Republican senators left in the Senate who have supported who supported New START, who voted for it, and and a slightly larger number of people who voted for any arms control agreement. But many, many fewer Republicans are interested in making agreements with the rest of the world to address the most dangerous threat to humanity, which has tremendous implications for the way the Biden administration conducts its non-proliferation policy with the rest of the world. If we cannot bind America to agreement, then we are on much weaker footing in being able to reach agreements internationally on these things.
1: Uh, absolutely true. And I think there's not enough. Uh, you know, we we often talk about the progressive moderate divide in the Democratic Party on economic and domestic issues. Uh, but there is, I think, one worthy of some exploration on on international policy as well. Thanks very much, Mika, for joining us today. Hopefully, we can come back again soon.
0: It was lovely to see you
1: all. Good luck. I'll talk lovely to you soon. To, lovely to to see you, Nick. You know, after um, four years of Trump, a, a massive amount has changed more than I think we could possibly have imagined. I, you know, when he took office, did we know that he was going to work systematically to dismantle almost every internationalist policy of the past seventy five years? No. That he'd go after NATO or the Paris Accords or the JCPOA or international trade agreements or our allies, um, that he would weaken us with his personal behavior, become subservient um, to Putin, um, engage in a strange uh, uh, but ultimately fruitless flirtation with uh, uh, Kim Jong-un. Uh, and uh, circular, um, not terribly effective battles with the Chinese, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Four years from now, at the end of the first term of a Biden administration, what do you think we need to look for as the big resets that will be attributed to Joe Biden and his foreign and national security team?
2: Well, David, let's hope that four years from now, the United States is going to be stronger because President Trump has weakened us, and you said it, across the board. So look for, can the United States uh, return to our allies and rebuild these alliances, NATO and the transatlantic region, Japan, South Korea, Australia in the Indo-Pacific, our new strategic relationship with India, which Ed and I have both uh, been looking at, watching for a number of years. If we can reconstruct those alliances, they're the power differentials between the United States and Russia, in the transatlantic, between the United States and China, in the Indo-Pacific. It's essential that we do that, number one. Number two, can we um, negotiate a very difficult relationship with China going forward? I think a lot of Republicans and Democrats are really in the same place. There's almost a bipartisan agreement that we need to be intensely competitive. I do wanna compete with China in a number of realms, particularly on, the, on, on their unfair trade practices. At the same time, you've gotta balance all that competition with some cooperative work. Climate change and the pandemic are two places to start. So can we compete with China and can we defend ourselves from the worst excesses of what the Chinese are doing and yet not end up in a, um, a spiral of competition that could lead to unintended conflict. That's a heavy thought, but that could happen if we're not sophisticated in our approach to China. And third, um, David, we need to move forward much faster on climate change. The one thing I'll say for the millennial generation, we are just talking about younger Democrats is, as I teach uh, those those people, is uh, they are absolutely committed to action on climate change as a generation, and uh, they're right about that and so Joe Biden, John Kerry, Tony Blinken. This is going to be very important for us to put our best foot forward. I would hope that there be some kind of bipartisan support for a long-term reengineering of the American economy that has to happen, but that's another indicator. 4 years from now will we be there? And I think most of all David, 4 years from now will the pandemic just be a really bad memory? Will we be fully behind it? Let's hope so. Let's expect so, but you never know. Can we have overcome the recession and return to growth in a way that gets at the problem of inequality. I'm just thinking as a citizen here, I'm not trying to predict what the administration will do, but can we put in place a stronger social safety net for the poor and even for the middle class, which is hurting badly, and we see it from the pandemic and the recession, can we put it together a graduated income tax that would be more fair uh, to the American people? So, all those—that's—that's—that would be the work of a generation if we could do all that in four years. But I do think we have a president who's willing to um, to move forward on at least some of these on the foreign policy side. Let's let's wish him the best because we're in tough shape right now. David, we're so much weaker and China's stronger than it was four years ago, and it's much more assertive and self-confident than four years ago. And Putin is still with us, as we know from the news of the last couple of days with this massive cyber attack on the United States government, which he appears to have done successfully.
1: Um, You know, I'm very heartened to hear the focus of, of what you're talking about, Nick, because I do think ultimately strength in foreign policy begins with strength at home. And, you know, George Cannon in the long telegram ends by saying, this is how we defeat the Russians. We take care of business at home. We set an example to the world and we have been um, uh, doing the opposite for the past four years. It's, it's, it's very, very clear. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that, you know, strikes me at as, as, as I listen to the very strategic outlook that I hear from Nick is that if I was going to come up with a criticism, not of Trump, whose, you know, focus was chaos and Trump um, but of Obama It was that the Obama years were not terribly strategic in foreign policy. It tended to be kind of reactionary. Obama came in with some very bold, big ideas, speeches in Cairo and in Prague about changing relations with the Muslim world or eliminating nuclear weapons. But once things happened, we started getting down in the weeds, become a little cautious, sort of lost any kind of strategic coherence in the Middle East and elsewhere. What are the lessons you think Joe Biden needs to learn from the Obama years that make a Biden foreign policy better, stronger, and more appropriate to the times than an Obama foreign policy?
3: That's a very good question. Um, as you know, in the last... Um, 24 Hours, um, John le Carré sadly passed away, one of my favorite writers, Um, and he had a great post-Cold War novel, The Constant Gardener. Um, And I think, you know, that was lacking, the constant gardening, from Obama's approach to foreign policy. Um, I, I think Biden is, has far more appetite for dealing with people and their imperfections and their idiosyncrasies. And that actually, this is an important part of of foreign policy, um, is relationships. Um, So that uh, just at that very mundane level, that's one sort of area um, where I think um, we will see an improvement, not just need an improvement. And of course, it would be a dramatic day and night improvement from Trump, um, whose approach to diplomacy will forever for me at any rate, be encapsulated by him elbowing out the president of Montenegro, just literally sort of pushing him out the way so that he could get in front of him and that photo op. Um, But I think Obama at a more deeper level lacked a strategic worldview. Um, I know that his defenders would say, well, look, he had the pivot to Asia, but before the pivot to Asia, he tried G2, and I was, as, as a journalist, actually, I was on that trip to China, November 2009-ish. Um, and um, he turned up, you know, with Robert Gibbs and David Axelrod and, and Valerie Jarrett and people like that. He turned up really with the domestic crew and he approached the trip like that. And it ended up being a bit of a disaster, well, not a disaster, but it wasn't a good visit. And the Chinese went out of their way to sort of Uh, humiliate him and snub him. And then he switches to the pivot to Asia. But other than sort of shifting a bit of hardware from the Atlantic to the Pacific, it wasn't really a joined up view of the world. And he didn't really follow up in a sustained way that such bold initiatives need. Biden's going to be, I think, more strategic. Um, I mean, I'd be very interested to hear Nick's point of view about the summit of democracy that, um, that Biden wants to hold. And in particular, I'd be keen to hear Nick's view about um, what role India plays in this summit of democracy, given that um, India is becoming less of a democracy every day, um, and that it's the world's largest illiberal democracy, arguably, and that that is a real concern. If the whole point of this summit of democracy is you're gathering people who aren't China well then india is the most important not china country in the world but its qualifications for being a liberal democracy are getting more tenuous over time that you know given nick's wonderful role negotiating the one two three agreement and selling it helping to sell it to congress with uh, i believe nick you can correct me the help there of then senator biden to get that bill passed um i'd be fascinated to hear how biden would resolve those contradictions
1: It's interesting, Nick. I'm going to give you the last word here because Eds posed two questions for you, and I want to pose the same question also to you, which is, how do you think a Biden administration may be different uh, from an Obama administration?
2: Well, I think it takes place at a different time. That's not a. I'm not trying to avoid your question, but the the situation we're in right now, in the late autumn of 2020, is so much more problematic for the United States than when President Obama took over. Now he faced huge challenge in the Great Recession, but we were a strong country. We were a self-confident country. We had firm alliances. We didn't have the crisis with China that we do now. And so I think think President Biden will take office, very experienced, probably the most experienced president we've had in foreign policy, along with George H.W. Bush in American history and good for us because we are facing so many challenges. I think the core of it is the democracies are lacking self-confidence and leadership. The self-confidence and strategic direction are right now, where do we see it? We see it with Xi Jinping pushing out against the Indians in the South and East China Sea against the United States. Putin still using his hybrid cyber manipulation to try to weaken us from within. Inside the citadel of NATO, you have Viktor Orban in Hungary and the Polish government and the Turkish government, all semi authoritarian or fully authoritarian countries. And so I think that Joe Biden's idea of a summit of democracies is the right one. We haven't seen the definition yet. We'll have to see what they want to do with it and who they invite, which is going to be an interesting uh, choice in itself. But I think that Joe Biden's right to say that the democratic world needs to get its game back and needs to get its self-confidence back. And the only country in the world that can do that is, is the United States. If we're back at the leadership table, which is what he, he wants to do, India is gonna be a big part of this. There's no question about it. Uh, right now, uh, one thing to watch, we haven't talked about it yet, is the emergence of the Quad in East Asia, the United States, Japan, Australia, and India, as a loose group of democratic countries, not a fully not a treaty organization, but a partnership designed to limit China's military ambitions in the, um, the Bay of Bengal, the Western Pacific, the Indian Ocean. Um, and uh, India is a confirmed member of that club now because of what happened on the border, the Himalayan border with China this past summer, the Chinese picking a fight with the Indians. Ed's right, uh, there's difficult time in India. Uh, growth is, has, has dropped precipitously. This is an economy that used to be growing at seven to 8% per year, which is now down to um, anemic growth at best. There are problems um, in the country because this huge Muslim minority now feels like uh, it is second class uh, because of the rise of the BJP and its Hindu um, uh, nationalism, if you will. This is a complicated country, but it's one that the United States has to fully, fully work with because of the priority of trying to limit China And Ed is right to say that when, after we negotiated the uh, civil nuclear agreement with India that really broke open the relationship towards a big strategic relationship back in 2007 and eight, we had to have two votes in the US Senate to change US law to take the sanctions off India. And the person who led it was a Democrat named Joe Biden, chairman of the foreign relations committee who was fully invested in the strategic importance of India at that time. And I didn't have a better I, I didn't have greater support in the Hill than anyone except for Joe Biden. And so I'm grateful to him to, uh, to this day because that allowed us to build the military and economic relationship that we have with India. It is a um, complex partnership, but it's a vital one for the US.
1: Ed asked you a question about the uh, bringing together the world's democracies. So just what, what what was your response to that? Yeah, on summit
2: of democracies, uh, I think it's a very good idea. The world needs to see that the United States is gonna stand up for democracy. How the Biden team puts this together, when this summit happens, is it a one-shot summit? Is it a permanent institution? I think before you have that summit, you'll see a big early attention on NATO and on the East Asian alliances, but this makes sense. I mean, I've been thinking of it this way, David and Ed, if Ronald Reagan were here right now, or John F. Kennedy, just to name two Presence over the last 60 years, they'd be all over this issue of the democratic ideal versus the authoritarian ideal that Xi Jinping is pushing. You know, we're the better society, we're the better government because we've come through the pandemic better than you have. The Chinese, with their wolf warrior diplomacy, are saying that. And there's really no one standing up for the democratic world. Angela Merkel has tried. I deeply admire her. Um, but Germany can't take the place of the United States and what the world has seen as an American president cavort with the authoritarian leaders. You began the program that way, David. Trump with Kim, Trump with Xi, Trump with Orban, Trump with Putin. And uh, Joe Biden's not going to be cavorting with dictators. He's going to be focusing, I, I, I believe, I'm just gonna, with Emmanuel Macron and, and Prime Minister Suga of Japan and, and um, Chancellor Merkel of Germany. Uh, and that's where we should be. So I think shoring up the democratic world through this idea of a summit of the democracies makes sense to me.
1: Let me ask a thirty-second follow-up question to Ed before we wrap up here. Just picking up on what Nick has said. Um, maybe it's a sixty-second follow-up question, but it, I, you know, I think Nick makes a strong case for the summit of democracies. The question is whether we'll still qualify for it by the time it you know it happens. Um, and, you know, I, I say that half facetiously because the as we're recording this, the Electoral College is going through its, you know, rickety, antiquated motions of, you know, re, you know ratifying the, 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 the will of the people. And, you know, Joe Biden, despite the efforts of, of Trump and company, will become the president. But the entire Republican Party, almost without exception. Has supported Trump's efforts to undermine this election. Um, They have the the leadership has done it. Uh, Yesterday, you had the House Whip, uh, uh, Minority Whip Steve Scalise, doing it. You know, saying this didn't happen. He didn't win. We have to look at this, and so forth. When you have a political party like that, and potentially a political party that has, as um, Lindsey Graham has posited. Donald Trump as the shadow president who f- spends the next 3 or 4 years going wherever he can and saying the election was rigged and 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 being aggrieved how much do you think that undermines us um in 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 these in you know as a as a champion of democracy 30 seconds for ed 30 seconds for nick and that'll be that
3: I suppose it depends whether and how quickly Trump fades. I mean, I I think he probably is going to announce a 2024, at least a hold on the 2024 nomination to prevent other names from taking the leadership from him. Um, Whether he will actually run in 2024, I don't know, but he'll want people to think he's going to as long as possible. And will therefore have basically a Damaklian sword hanging over every Republican neck And I doubt they're going to become more, you know, they're going to find their spine. Um, There are a few like Bill Cassidy, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, who have said the right thing, that Biden is a president-elect and it's time to, even the Wall Street Journal editorial page. But the party as a whole um, is built on Trumpism now. And Trumpism is what? It's hatred of liberals. And that's the unifying principle. It's not capital gains tax cuts. Um, It's hatred of liberals and whatever liberals like, they hate. And that's essentially the organizing principle of the party. So I I do feel uh, for any president coming in, but particularly Biden, since his whole career has been based on reaching across the aisle and being able to work together with the opposition, I feel, you know, desperately sorry for him
1: coming in in these conditions. Nick, last word on this.
2: David, um, I'm, as a citizen, I'm, I'm appalled by the actions of the Attorney General of Texas, by so many people in one party denying this election and denying um, Joe Biden's victory. It's, it's just deeply, deeply damaging to our democracy and the election. I, I'll bet the three of us could never have imagined a couple of years ago that we'd ever be here. And we're here. Um, I, I have deep faith that Joe Biden Uh, is going to be the best possible possible person to take the oath of office on the 20th of January because he is dedicated to trying to heal some, begin to heal some of these divisions. It's going to take a very long time, maybe decades to heal them completely if they can be healed. And and he's been saying he'll be president for all Americans. He's been pitch perfect, in my judgment, in this transition, pitch perfect and sending the right messages to the American people. Donald Trump will go down without a question, is the worst and most depraved and most divisive president we've ever had. I think in a very short time, once he uh, leaves the stage, people will regret having supported him. Many people will. I just have to hope that's going to be true uh, because I believe that will be true, and that's the way to begin the healing process that we all need. And just to complete the circle, we do need bipartisanship to pass major legislation on the economy and certainly bipartisanship in foreign policy. So I think President-elect Biden's right to think that you know, you've got to apply some attention there and hope that you can build some of those ties uh, on key votes.
1: Yeah, totally agree with you. You know, there are a lot of people out there who think that Joe Biden's um, uh, regular recitation about his commitment to bipartisanship is naive and old fashioned, and actually it's extremely bold. It is the only thing that will make the government of the United States work again and be uh, legitimate. And uh, I I think that uh, you're also exactly right. Uh, This has been the most extraordinary transition period we've ever seen, where one party was actively trying to undermine democracy while Tens of thousands of Americans were dying every week, and the economy was in deep, deep trouble. Um, And it would have been very easy for an incoming administration to strike a wrong note, to be erratic. And from the moment that Joe Biden was elected, through each of his appointments, through each and every day, He did not get flustered. He did not get distracted. He did not let Donald Trump set the tone of this transition. He did by following the way the system is supposed to work and finding the best people that he could find for the jobs. Uh, And I've said it here before. I think that this team coming in, and I'm sure there will be flaws and problems in it. But I think this team coming in right now is the strongest one that I've seen. And I arrived in Washington 27 years ago um, coming in, uh, in terms of the quality of the minds, experience, the chemistry between the people, the things that I've written about as being essential to making government work. So I'm in a very dark moment in, in American history, kind of optimistic. Um, and uh part of it is for reasons such as those that were outlined by Ed and 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 by Nick. Um uh, it's always good to have you here, Nick, because I really think that the big picture you are providing and the insights you're providing, which I know you're providing to that team, are so important. So thank you very, very much. Uh thanks to everybody for listening. Uh uh try and uh tune in later in the week. We've got a couple of special um, um, podcasts. We've got one coming on Wednesday with a former National Security Advisor, uh, Tom Donlin. We've got uh, 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 a couple members of Congress coming in on the Thursday podcast and, uh, and so forth. So uh, stay with us and uh, stay healthy. Bye-bye.